It's time for Hamilton County Goes to the Movies for June 14th, 2019. This is a podcast all about film, featuring Adam Lawson, owner of Donatello's Italian Restaurant in Carmel, former journalist, and a lover of film. My name is Larry Lannon. I write the local news blog from Fishers, Indiana, LarryInFishers.com. Adam and I put this podcast on hiatus as he ran successfully in the primary election for a Carmel City Council seat, and I was busy with a number of projects. We think this is the right time to bring the podcast back. That will not always be weekly, but we will produce the podcast as film releases warrant. So, let's get started with this episode. From Donatello's Italian Restaurant, downtown Carmel, the Arts and Design District, right on Main Street near Range Line Road, we're back with Hamilton County Goes to the Movies after a long interregnum because Adam and I have both been busy, and we'll talk about that. So, Adam... It's always great to see you, and it's always great to talk about movies. Oh, yeah, it's good to see you. I hadn't seen a lot of movies recently. Uh, me and my wife had a, uh, a baby, now six months old, and uh, I ran for political office, and uh, I did win my primary. Um, so that kept me pretty busy. Um, but recently, I, I saw a couple of them. It's kind of nice. So we'll talk about a few of those today. And uh, yes, uh, you'll have your first Father's Day as a father coming up. We're recording this two days before Father's Day, so congratulations ahead of time. Of course, Madeline really can't uh, fuss over you for a few more years, but that's all right. As long as you know you're a dad, it's always a fun Father's Day when you have your first one. Uh, The other thing is uh, congratulations on your uh, win in your uh, elective office endeavor. And I guess I cannot quite call you... Uh, city councilman elect until a few dates pass by for either a, a Democratic or an independent candidate to run. But if leaving that aside, you are city Yeah, Larry was going to try to move to the district and run against me, but yeah, he, you couldn't, know, was... he couldn't do it in time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been some campaign. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, would, we would have uh, film debates instead of political debates. But no, I, I, we spent a lot of time doing other things. I was traveling the state. I had other things uh, that I was doing as well, and you were very busy. So we decided to to do this uh, to do an interregnum, and we've decided to do it a little differently. Before we were on every week, and that got to be a bit of a strain on both of us. So what we're going to do is we're going to have these as uh, as films come up, and as we have the time to sit down and talk about them. Or the original plan was to have a guest on every show to the extent possible. Uh, We'll do it when we can. We may not have a guest every time, but when we can have a guest, we'll be glad to put one on and talk. We try to get local guests who have ties to the film industry in just about any way. So we'll continue to do that, and we will have these uh, uh, segments on as we can do that. We'll we'll probably be more often uh, with these when we have really good films to talk about. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about the summer season and, and what's cranking up there. Um, anything you want to say to, uh, to start off uh, before we delve into these films? No. Oh, right. let's, let's do I'm going to talk about just, I'm going to talk about a couple of films I saw that I don't think you saw. And these go back a few weeks. You can always stream them, you know, if not now, very soon. Uh, both of them are documentary films. The first one is Hesburgh. Hesburgh is about Father Ted, they called him, Theodore Hesburgh. There were, and I thought I knew much about him. He, he's best known for being the uh, president of the uh, University of Notre Dame. 
but he did many other things. For example, he was the Vatican appointee to the first big nuclear arms control uh, confab that happened in Europe back in the 1950s. Again, nuclear weapons had only been around for so many years. And the problem was the Soviet delegation and the American delegation uh, just didn't talk to each other. I mean, the, the relations were bad at that time. Well, Hesburgh was appointed to that confab. Of course, he is American, was American, but uh, he was appointed by the Vatican, so he was not representing the United States government. And Father Hesburgh ended up striking up a friendship with the head of the Soviet delegation because there was no wall there politically in, in terms of the, 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 the Cold War rivalry. And Hesburgh ended up kind of being a mediator between the Russians and the Americans, and they got a few things done. It wasn't perfect, and they didn't get everything done. The other thing was he was also one of the early appointees by uh, Dwight Eisenhower uh, to the Civil Rights Commission for the United States. And what? And, and this is the part I didn't know until I saw this film, is that Father Ted, and that's what they call him in the film, Father Ted... Uh, basically wrote the Civil Rights Act of 1964 because they, the, his group, and they had uh, uh, people from the South, they had segregationists on this, they had people from the North who were anti-segregationists, wanted to be integrationists. He found a way for them to come together, which was a big feat in those days. I, I, I'm old enough to remember that the, the feelings at that time. And he was able to get them to agree on a template, some language. And when uh, finally Lyndon Johnson became president and, and, and that all came to a head in Congress, it was Father Ted's language and, and his group's language that was basically the, the, I mean, they made a few changes, but that was the basics of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which still exists today and is used quite often in law. The other thing is that Notre Dame, even though he did all these things all around the world at the Vatican and he had these civil rights, and he was very involved in civil rights and that whole movement with Martin Luther King, he always counseled, he found time to counsel the students at Notre Dame. And, and, you could, and the, the, the students said you could go to his residence at three in the morning if you saw the light on, you could knock on the door and he'd sit down and talk to you. I mean, he was just that kind, he was just one of those men that, transcended the priesthood. He was an excellent priest, said Mass every single day. They said there might have been one exception. He said Mass every day of his priestly life. So um, I, I was very impressed with this film. So my recommendation on Hesburgh, if you get the chance to see it, if it shows up on pay TV or it shows up on a streaming service, it's worth a few dollars. Any, oh, any sounds thoughts? interesting. I mean, I, I heard about that. I'll have to check that one out. Just happened. I was fortunate enough. It only ran a few weeks, mm -hmm. and, and and it was interesting. I uh, as I was walking out of the theater, I saw uh, one of my former colleagues that I worked with in the government. <laughs> I hadn't oh, seen yeah. her for years, and uh, we we stood and talked for for several minutes. So it was good to see her. It was kind of a happenstance there. I'll, I'll talk about one more film. I'll turn it over to you. This was another documentary, and again, this kind of goes to the Cold War as well. Meeting Gorbachev. Now, um, Gorbachev uh, was a transition figure in, Ru in the Soviet Union and in Russia. And it was very interesting because we had a German filmmaker trying to interview uh, the last head of the old Soviet Union, a Russian. And let's just say Germans and Russians don't have the greatest history as, as peoples because you know, a lot of Russian people still remember what happened when Germany invaded Russia. 
it was a horrible, horrible situation. Anybody who's read about World War II or knew anybody that, that was involved with that, because Americans were too involved in that front, but uh, the loss of life for the Russian people in World War II was massive, and it was mostly due to that, that German invasion. So here you have this German filmmaker who is interviewing Gorbachev. It's very, very revealing. Uh, one thing I found interesting is that even though Gorbachev was, was the man who tried to, to reform the Soviet Union, instead of the reforms working, the whole system basically collapsed. And when it collapsed, the Soviet Union, as it was known, that empire collapsed. And Gorbachev, even though he's, uh, you know, he's still... Uh, uh, how should I say, still, he has his own, uh, I think, a foundation. He still works in Russia. He is not a popular man in Russia. He is very unpopular because the Russian people blame him for the crumbling of their empire. That Soviet empire was considered a Russian empire. Uh, and, and there were even people who weren't too crazy about the system, the, uh, the Soviet system, who still blamed yeah, Gorbachev for Yeah, I think there that. was, this shows you how much he wasn't liked. I think Paul Giamatti was supposed to play him in a movie. And if you know anything about Paul Giamatti, he doesn't usually play the handsome, well-loved leading men. <laughs> <laughs> no, he does not. <laughs> he, yeah, he, has, he has another persona. Great actor, but you're right, he's, he doesn't have that romantic lead uh, look to him. So I, I, I guess as a kid who grew up, you know, with the Cold War, you know, duck and cover, they taught us when I was in high school, like that, or not high school, grade school, as if that was going to save us if, you know, there was a nuclear exchange. Uh, but the thing that also got me is that uh, these two men, this, this Bolshevik, the man from the Bolshevik tra tradition, although he wasn't one of the old Bolsheviks, uh, he and Ronald Reagan, a, a, an arch-conservative in the United States, had a common goal. They both wanted to rid the world of, of, of nuclear weapons, which would seem odd that they would have that, uh, they would have that uh, goal in mind and have a common goal in mind. Uh, they never got it done. There were some technical and some, some political philosophies that got in the way. Uh, but they were sincere in trying to get it done. Even though, and and they, even though that wasn't done, people forget. And the first term of Reagan, it was pretty. I mean, the Russian government, the Soviets in those days, and America. We, we, I remember George Shultz, who was Secretary of State at the time, being interviewed, saying we had virtually no contact during that first term of Reagan. But the second term of Reagan uh, produced a lot of arms control agreements, a lot of other agreements between the old Soviet Union. And the United States. So uh, I think the, the, the Reagan-Gorbachev uh, personal connection, and they're, they're, even though they had plenty of differences, they had some common goals, and they worked toward those and made some progress. Didn't obviously get everything done they wanted, but uh, you know, it's a little difficult to watch because uh, it's, it's, you have to read the subtitles, because uh, Gorbachev obviously does not speak English. Uh, but it was very well done, and, and there was a lot of uh, background film. There was a lot of background about Gorbachev's past, about his childhood, uh, about how he had emerged. He had actually been uh, one of the, the young Soviet officials who actually believed in getting something done. He was an agriculture secretary that actually improved agriculture, which was a total mess at the time he was put in charge, first in a local area and then throughout the entire Soviet empire. The other thing is, they talked about what was happening in the Soviet Union at that time. You know, when, when Khrushchev was deposed in, I think it was 1963 or 4, you know, Brezhnev took over. Well, Brezhnev in his later years was, was had Alzheimer's. I mean, he, he was, they rarely ever put him out in public. 
then you know he dies, and then uh, that the next leader comes in, and and he dies two years later. And by the time the next, these are all the old Bolsheviks mm-hmm. in the old days. They're all old men. And the next one, he was terminally ill when he actually took the job. <laughs> yeah. So remember last year when we reviewed um, Death of Stalin? Yes. And yes. Uh, so I, my uh, Russian history or Soviet history is limited, so I knew some of it. So after that movie, I went, of course, on Wikipedia and looked up, okay, now who was president or yeah. you know the, the head of the government then and there? It gets really confusing with the Soviet and the Russian government, and uh, the turnover was uh, well. The like, reason it was yeah. the reason for that is, and, and this is the part that complicated the old Soviet Empire. They had a government, and they had the party. Yes, and the party really ran everything. The government was there, and a lot of those people had posts from both of them. Yeah, but it was the sometimes Politburo. there was somebody who was in charge of both. Exactly. So, yeah, uh, the old Politburo of the Communist Party made all the big decisions. It wasn't the government. So that's where you had you had no real success. I came out in Death of Stalin. Yeah. There's no real succession plan. You know. <laughs> no, and it's interesting too if you look at even just recent history. We always go from uh, Soviet Union slash Russia. Are they friends? Are they enemies? They're good. They're bad. They're good. They're bad. Well, it's never that complicated. I mean, never that uh, easy. easy yeah. It's always more complicated. Um, it's just like saying, is the United States good or bad? I mean, there's good actions and there are bad actions. There are good people and bad people within every government. So, um, yeah, it gets really complicated when you start to look at things. But, uh, you know, and I, of course, people in the United States... We don't have the same appetite for foreign news or foreign history that we do locally. Um, So I think checking out documentaries and movies like these are are good educational experiences for us. So if you don't mind the subtitles, uh, I found it very interesting. I learned a lot about Gorbachev. If you have any interest in the history of that period of the world... Uh, I, I think that uh, that film, uh, again, I, I, you have to remember, I, I enjoy documentaries. I enjoy watching them in a movie theater more than most. Although I do watch Netflix now and then. I, I love to see it in a film theater if I can. So you, I have a little bit of uh, leaning that way, but I, I still think this is one of the better documentaries I've seen for a while. Tell me about some of your films. So now Larry talked about the cultural, sophisticated, high-minded movies. <laughs> and now I'm going to bring up uh, silly popcorn fair. So I'm anxious. Let's hear. All it. All right. Uh, actually, let me start off with one that's probably not as popcorny, but it was in major theaters. It was a wide release, and it was probably the best movie I've seen in a while. And that's Booksmart. Uh, you know, I wanted to see that film. I'm sorry I didn't get a chance yeah. to see it. Tell me about it. So Booksmart is a kind of a teen coming of age comedy. Uh, if you saw Superbad over a decade ago, it's got a very similar plot line. Here are two kids in high school about to graduate, uh, young women, uh, and they're going off to top colleges. They studied hard, and then they realized uh, they spent all their time studying in high school. They never had any fun. They didn't go to any parties. And there's a real epiphany when they realize all the popular kids who did party, they're getting into the good schools, too. They're going to Harvard and Yale too. So this, what was it all for? Why did we study when we could have had we could have had fun too? So they're determined that on their last night before they go off to college, that they need to go to a party. And then, of course, similar to Superbad, it becomes an adventure trying to find the party. And there's all these uh, steps along the way to finally get to that party because they don't know the address and they're trying to text someone to find it out. 
Um, interestingly enough, comparison to Superbad, one of the leads, uh, Beanie Feldstein, is the younger sister of Jonah Hill, who was in that movie. And you may remember her as the friend in Lady Bird. Okay. Um, so she's sure. getting kind of a starring role in this. Um, it's really funny. It's clever. It's one of those movies that after you see it, you want to take someone else who hasn't seen it to go see it. And I don't want to oversell it. It's a little derivative. Like I mentioned, I'm making a lot of comparisons to another movie, which is not always a good thing. It makes it a little less original. But I think the casting is good. I think the writing is very clever. And Olivia Wilde, um, well-known actress, in her directorial debut does a great job. So uh, I don't know if that one's still in theaters. I mean, it's summertime. Things are coming and going quite quick. Um, it, it took a low production budget, so it wasn't um, an expensive film to make, but the studio really liked it, and they put a lot of marketing dollars behind it, and I think they were disappointed they didn't break through more. It was, uh, you know, kind of in the vein of the indie releases, did a few million as opposed to getting huge box office success. So um, it's a little disappointment, but I hope uh, the critical praise makes the studio give this uh, director and another chance. Um, we also, I also saw John Wick 3. Now, have you ever seen any of the John Wick movies, Larry? I think I saw one on TV once. Okay. The first one, I think, is one of the best action movies out there. Uh, I don't know how many years ago it came out, uh, but Keanu Reeves plays a retired assassin who has given up that life, which is very difficult. His wife just died of cancer, uh, and after his wife dies of cancer, she gives him a dog, a little beagle puppy and it's a very quiet slow opening to an action film which you never really expect burglars break into his house to try to steal his car they don't know he's a former assassin they just think he's got a cool car they break in steal his car which he loves but while they're breaking in they stomp and kill his puppy hmm. and you don't really see it but you know it's it's you know what happened. yes yeah. So then he goes on a killing spree because this man is a one-man killing machine. He was one of the best assassins out there, and now he's out there getting revenge for his dog. That's the first movie. Great film for a couple of reasons. One, Keanu Reeves is one of the best uh, physical actors. He does a lot of his own stunts. He knows how to do martial arts, and he does a great job. You know, as seen from his Bill and Ted days, he's not a great dialogue guy, but he's really good at the stunts. And the first movie was one of the few action movies where you actually want the hero to succeed. You actually care because they killed his dog. Larry, so many times I watch an action movie and I don't care if the guy gets the weapon or steals the bomb or saves whoever. There's no motivation for me. But if you kill that dog, I swear to God, I am emotionally attached now, the sequels never really had that emotional weight. They have the great action. They have the great stunts of Keanu Reeves. But instead of kind of having that motivation, they decided to build a bigger world of assassins and the mythology behind it. And it's almost like a comic book. And the second one edges your way into that. And the third John Wick movie, and spoiler, they've already announced a fourth, and they end the movie where you think, yeah, they're doing another one. They're trying to turn it into this big, sprawling, comic book-level franchise with all these mysterious government organizations, and uh, it gets a little complicated. So in this film, the plot, eh, I could really care less. But the action and the stunts were refreshing 
because in the day of CGI where we've got uh, actors are basically standing in front of a green screen pretending to dodge things, here's a guy actually doing stunts, actually moving around. It's some of the best stunts I've seen probably since the last Mission Impossible movie, which is another movie that used practical mm-hmm. stunts. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and there's some really creative action scenes. Now, I do warn you, it is incredibly violent. Uh, even for me, who I watch a lot of action movies, I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's got to hurt. I was cringing at some of these things. But if you're okay with that and you like the, the old school action films, uh, that's worth a watch. So Dog Revenge is the, is the plot to us that gets you hooked. Well, I mean, it gets me emotional. You're a dog lover, right? Yeah, I, and it gets you emotional. And you, you can relate to that. Um, I can't relate to, a, you know, uncovering a government conspiracy, Larry, but I can relate to... Well, you're going to be part of government soon, more than likely. Yeah, so. I'll find out. I'll let you know if I find a conspiracy. <laughs> and finally, I want to talk about what is being called one of the worst movies. It's not as bad as people say, but I can't really give it praise, and that is the final installment in the X-Men franchise, Dark Phoenix. You know, I've heard a lot of varying reviews on this. Some reviewers have trashed it, but I know one particular, Christopher Lloyd, who we've had on the program, uh, he really liked it and and, and kind of almost woefully wrote on his uh, Facebook page, I think I'm out there in the, uh, I, I'm kind of out there on my own because there aren't that many critics that like it. So what did you think of it? So I, I'd say C minus. Okay. Um, it's not the worst superhero movie I've seen. It's not even the worst X-Men movie, but I can't really say it's a good movie. Here's, before I get into kind of the analysis of it, I'll say this to, to recommend people whether you should see it or not. If you've seen every X-Men movie up to this point and you generally liked most of them, go see this one. It's not so bad that this should be the, the, the one X-Men movie you don't go see. If you've seen them all and you like them all, this one is fine. Go see it. There are a few good action scenes. If the X-Men movies are hit or miss for you and you liked some of them, but you haven't seen all of them and you really don't care that much, this one will not convert you. If you don't like the X-Men movies, but you only like one or two, definitely run away. Don't go see this. Uh, The best one in my mind is probably Logan, which is kind of a outlier. It takes more of a dramatic approach with Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart. And I like the old school uh, X2 with uh, Brian Singer directing, which we'll talk about Brian Singer a little later when we get into, because, uh, uh, you know, he was the original director on Bohemian Rhapsody. That's right. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit about Rocket Man later. That's right. Um, Same director. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll say it now. Brian Singer, <laughs> here's the problem with this guy. He's ruined the X-Men movies because he went AWOL on set. He was kicked off of Bohemian Rhapsody mm-hmm. for pulling these stunts. Mm-hmm. And then... Bohemian Rhapsody, a film about a gay icon and Freddie Mercury, was not honored by the GLAAD Awards because Brian Singer has a very troubled past of a lot of rape and sexual assault accusations with underage men. And his response to it, instead of confronting these accusations, was to call it homophobia, uh, which was not taken very well by any community, let alone the gay or straight community. It doesn't matter. It was not taken well. Uh, I don't know how this guy... He doesn't finish movies. He doesn't stay around. Um, 
I've always found Hollywood to be a rather strange place. Yeah. It, it's it's like a small town. It's almost like he's the crazy guy that hangs out on the street corner in the little town, you know. He's still around, uh, and you bring him in now and then, but he's not somebody you can depend on. Well, yeah. he His influence was still here. Um, Simon Kinberg, who was the director of Dark Phoenix, he took over a lot of the uh, last X-Men movie because Brian Singer pulled his stunts again. So he had a little training uh, in there. <laughs> Unfortunately, maybe it wasn't good training because it, it's, if you hated X-Men Apocalypse, the last movie, you're not going to like this one any better. The problem with these recent X-Men movies are they waste the talent of really good actors, Larry. Yes, that's true. Um, they had a couple years ago, or more than 10 years ago probably, X-Men First Class, an attempt to reboot the series after uh, Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart all finished in the in the uh, X-Men The Last Stand, and they had Jennifer Lawrence pre-Hunger Games. And then right after that movie, she did Hunger Games and Silver Linings Playbook and won an Oscar and became a big star. And yet they had her in contract for three or four movies. So they hit a jackpot there. Here is a great actress that they got right at the right time and they could use her for the other movies. But instead of really utilizing her talents, maybe she didn't want to be in a lot of scenes. They've wasted her in the last few movies. Uh, Fewer and fewer scenes with here a great actress um, this movie, she's barely in it, and when she's in it, she she might as well have been wearing a T-shirt that says "I'm here for the paycheck." Or you know, it reminded <laughs> me of contract. Yeah, so I have to. It reminded this. me of when Marshawn Lynch used to do the press conference. He says, "I'm only here not to get fined. I'm only here not to get fined." Yeah, it was it was basically <laughs> like that, Larry. And there, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. This movie is going to lose a hundred million dollars. They say. Which one is this now? X, the new X Men, Dark, Dark Phoenix. Phoenix. Yes. Wow. <laughs> it's going to lose a hundred well, million. There, I think the next X Men film will be a pretty tough pitch to the uh, well. Executives. Now, here's the thing. Now, Fox has been purchased by Marvel. That is correct. So the MCU, with which has done a fantastic job, is going to probably do something similar to what they did with Spider Man, where they're going to recast it and kind of integrate the X Men, and presumably they could do Fantastic Four too. The question is. When do they do that? I mean, they just had the X-Men movies come out. Do they wait some time, let you forget, get some new actors involved? Or do they do they try to get them in there soon? Because that's a big property with a lot of characters and movies they, that Marvel could integrate. And as seen by some of the recent movies, they were killing off characters, running out of characters. They need some... But it's science fiction. You know, the, nobody's ever dead in <laughs> science fiction. Well, remember uh, Star Trek? Remember the Star yeah. Trek films when uh, Spock died, and lo and behold, next film he's back. So you know, it's, it's science fiction. You can play with that in a lot of different ways. Does anybody really die? Well, listen, we're going to talk about Rocket Man next. I think you and I are going to have a good discussion about that. So we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Hamilton County Goes to the Movies. <laughs> Our podcast originates from Donatello's Italian Restaurant, 9 West Main Street in the heart of the downtown Arts and Design District. Summer's here. Outside dining is underway as available. Enjoy a quality Italian meal right along Main Street in downtown Carmel. Remind people you know, the podcast Hamilton County Goes to the Movies is back. Spread the word, provide updates to people you know, and send out the links for those who might enjoy the podcast. 
Our podcasts are available on nearly every platform where podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Just search the phrase, Podcasts by Larry Lannon. Back at Hamilton County goes to the movies. We're going to move on to the film Rocket Man. It's the life story of Elton John. Well, not the whole life, but highlights of his life, particularly professional. But we get to know his childhood, and, and there's a lot in this film. So and I, I say, when I wrote my review, I, I talk about the fact that when I was a newbie in the broadcasting business, I did a lot of programming of music. And I was starting to do that just as Elton John's career was beginning to move forward. And always really loved the music that he wrote and, and the words that Bernie Toppin wrote for him. So it's the story of Elton John. I'll just, uh, I'll let... Uh, I'll let Adam start. Tell me your, your thoughts. So this film is going to be compared a lot to Bohemian Rhapsody right off the start for a lot of reasons. Uh, the musical biopic, there's a big appetite after Bohemian Rhapsody was a surprise. I don't know if it's a surprise, but it was a big commercial and critical success. Not only huge box office numbers. Well, the Oscars, for one yes, thing. Yes, I mean, it won Best Actor, nominated for Best Picture, in a surprise to me, won the Golden Globe for Best Drama. I didn't, I didn't know it was literally a drama. And well, the Globes are a little, they're, yeah, they're a little. How should I put a shaky on their categories? And I was always surprised by that because while I liked Bohemian Rhapsody, I didn't love it as much as others. The screenplay felt a little cliche, just like a lot of biopics are. Um, but the acting was fantastic, and the um, interesting enough, we talked earlier. Brian Singer, the credited director, when you look at the credits but didn't actually finish the film because, like I said, he pulled his antics. You're talking about Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes. Okay. And Dexter Fletcher is the one who helped, was brought in to finish the film. Now, he's the director from beginning to end here on Rocket Man, Mm -hmm. and he's teaming up with Taron Edgerton. And Taron Edgerton worked with him before on a film called Eddie the Eagle, which a lot of people haven't seen. It was about a long jumper. And Taron Edgerton does a great job and kind of a different role for him. Before that, he was seen as kind of an action star, having been the lead of the Kingsman movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but here he's breaking through with another kind of thing, singing, dancing, and portraying Elton John. He looks like him. He acts like him. And what made me excited about this film He's actually singing. So he doesn't sound exactly like Elton John, but there isn't lip syncing. There isn't playing something from the record and he has to move his lips along with it. He's actually the one singing in this film and on the soundtrack. And he does a fantastic job with the singing. Great job with the acting. The movie itself is going to be very different than Bohemian Rhapsody in one key reason. This is a straight-up musical, like you'd see on Broadway, I guess, uh, singing and dancing, characters breaking out into song. For that reason, the songs are kind of telling some of the story. Yes, they are. Um, so they're not told exactly in the order that they came out. Usually in a musical biopic, here was the first song that they wrote, then the second one, and there's concerts and recording studios, and that's kind of how you see the music. Instead... You start with him as a child, and he's singing The Bitches Back, which was a little weird fit at the beginning, but... You figure it out in the end. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, when it first started with the musical stuff, I kind of shrugged a bit in the audience. I thought, oh, okay, 
am I going to like this? I'm not so sure. I was, I was feeling it out a little bit, Larry. But as the movie went on, the whole musical format actually kind of grew on me. I th- Admittedly, I think the movie was a little slow to start. But once you got into his career and you see Taron Egerton kind of take that on, um, I thought it was a great film. Um, I thought it, the songs are fantastic. Um, I heard your review, and I think you um, may have loved this movie more than I did, but I enjoyed it. Um, I don't know if I'd buy it, but I'd watch it again, and uh, I'd be interested to see more work from this director and actor. Um, If you really are a big fan of Elton John, you will like this movie. If you don't care for his music, this isn't going to convert you. Um, but I think for a lot of people out there who enjoyed his music and grew up with it, this would be a very fun night out for the movies. And although it has some adult themes and it talks about some dark times in his past, the movie ends on an optimistic note. So you'll leave the theater feeling good. Yeah, you, the movie really does hone in on, on his darkest moments. The film starts with him barging into a group therapy session in one of his crazy outfits. And it sort of doesn't quite, it ends there and then him going to rehab after that. Uh, So his, I mean, it's been pretty well documented and public, all of his uh, demons that he's had to deal with. I I agree with you. It's very much like a very well done Broadway musical. Uh, I don't know whether somebody would really like this film if they're kind of in the middle or not, don't have any real strong feelings about Elton, Elton John's music. But I think the story is very compelling. For example, his home life was a total mess. His father never paid any attention to him. His mother was just a little off. But it was his grandmother's that, that supported him when he showed some musical talent and uh, took lessons, and the person giving him lessons said, you need to go to this academy. And then, you know, he bloomed as as a musician and went from there to uh, learn loving rhythm and and blues music from America and and went from there. Um, You're right, the the homosexuality is, is, everybody's known that uh, he he is a gay man, and and there are some scenes in there, if if that makes you uncomfortable, you're going to be uncomfortable on those scenes. I mean, just just so you know. But uh, I, I think, you know, he, his personal life has always been a mess. And you're right, at the very end, they say, okay, when the film ends, his wife, his life really did turn around. He did figure out a way to, uh, to, to take care of himself and to find a relationship that was long-term and adopted kids and, and had something like, uh, I guess, the closest thing you can have to a quote-unquote normal life when you're a, you're a, a celebrity at that level. Yeah, so one thing I was thought interesting, I don't know why they didn't put in the Ryan White stuff, because Elton John, um, so years ago I saw Elton John at Clues Hall, and he was doing a fundraiser for the Ryan White Foundation through the Children's Museum, which has the exhibit, and Jeannie White was there, Phil Donahue was there, uh, Judith Light, who played Jeannie White in the movie, That's right. and Elton John did about an hour concert at an intimate setting and did a great job before he talked a little bit about what Ryan White meant to him. And it was, I don't know if it was right before he got clean or after, but he saw this kid. And if you don't know the Ryan White story, obviously the Ryan White story, I'll just say yeah. quickly. He, uh, he had, he was a hemophiliac kid when AIDS was a new thing and people uh, were afraid of having a, a child with AIDS 
in a school, there was a lot of misunderstanding and, and, and fear, to be honest it's with Kokomo, you. Kokomo, right? Yeah, it was in the Kokomo area. Yeah. And then he moved closer to, to, to was it in Hamilton County? I think he went to Hamilton mm-hmm. County and was accepted there. And, uh, and, 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 and of course, the, the poor young man died, and it was a long death, but he was always, uh, how should I put it, he showed a lot of strength when he, was, when he came under attack at his first school and then in his second school where he was more embraced and here in Hamilton County, and, and the people uh, tried to make him a part of the community, and he sort of became a symbol for other children yeah. who were dealing with AIDS and the fear related to AIDS. But I'll say one thing about Elton yeah. John. He, at first, he was very much into this, but i, I got to be real about this, honest about it. Elton John is like a lot of celebrities. Uh, they, they get very interested in a subject for a while, and then they move on to something else. At the time you saw him, he was very much for the Ryan White. But the Ryan White Foundation, several years after young Ryan died and his mother tried to keep the foundation going, she was having trouble raising money. Yeah. And a lot of the celebrities, I mean, and, and I'm not saying this to be critical, mm-hmm. it's just the nature of the business, kind of went on to other yeah. things. So he, at this time in his life, and Elton John was trying to get clean and get off the drugs, um, he saw this young boy who was struggling with a, at that time, it was a life-ending disease. Obviously, we've had medical advancements since then. Um, and he was in Jeannie White's kitchen, washing dishes, trying to help out. And he just saw, how can I be so selfish, killing myself in drugs, when here's a young kid who's struggling with this, didn't ask for this, and he's showing such courage and bravery. So... Uh, that was one thing that inspired him. Now, to insert that into a movie, that might have added 30 no, I don't, minutes. I don't, I don't think that would have really fit into the but film. But inter- well. I wonder if they had any discussions about that. Interesting to know. I, I don't know the answer to that question. I haven't read anything uh, either way. But I think and it's like any other film. You, you uh, They might have even shot scenes about that and put it on the cutting room floor. So you can only put so much in and keep the film moving, and, and that's that's part of entertainment. One criticism I do have of the film, and I and I really liked it, um, it is executive produced by Elton John, and his fingerprints are all over well, it. And I, and I said that in my review. I said, okay, it's a great film. I love this film. I, I, part of my uh, way I, I evaluate any film is how do I feel when I walk out of the theater? You know, how do I really feel? What kind of time did I have? And I really enjoyed that film. I walked out thinking, wow. But you've got to be real about it. I mean, this is Elton John's life story as told by Elton John. Yeah. It was not an independent look at his life, although he was quite honest about his foibles, quite honest about his addictions. Uh, it wasn't a love fest. I mean, you saw the dark side of Elton John, but it was his side of the story. So one interesting side note, too, the same director, of course, we talked about Bohemian Rhapsody. There was an article I sent you where yeah, I saw there that. was yeah. talk of doing a Rami Malek cameo as, um, <laughs> yeah, right there in a restaurant. <laughs> and the, the idea would have been, and this is interesting, uh, there was a character in this movie, the manager for Elton John, played by Richard Madden, who yes. was on Game of Thrones. Uh, and that was played in uh, Bohemian Rhapsody by Aidan Gillen who was on Game of Thrones. And uh, I know, interesting. (laughs) But here's the same kind of manager who is the manager for both of them at the time, British band. So yeah, you could have done a little cameo crossover, and then you would have had a cinematic universe similar (laughs) to the MCU for biopic movies. (laughs) Oh, that's too funny. 
Yeah, I saw that article. That was funny. I just saw that as I was, before I came over here. That's so. That is so funny. So I guess Rocket Man. I gave it an A because I just love the experience of being in the theater. Maybe I'm a little prejudiced because I was. I'm a, I've been a fan of his music for a long time. I don't think you have to be a fan of his music to enjoy this film. Uh, you, well, I think you gave it something less than an A grade. Oh yeah, I'd say it was a B movie, That's but a, I mean. Okay. A B is still good. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, if you're really into his music, this won't disappoint you. Go see it. Uh, I heard people say that maybe by the trailers, they were a little surprised that it was a musical or that they liked Bohemian Rhapsody better. It's going to get those comparisons. But this is not a bad movie. It's an enjoyable night at the theater. Um, and it's a lot more lighthearted than the documentaries that Larry goes to see. I know. <laughs> it's, not, it's not all that I see. It's not the only film I see, saw, but I do love those. Now, you did see something lighthearted recently. You saw Late Night. I'm about to talk about that. Awesome. All right. <laughs> I just, just, and I got to see, you know, I love to go to these Thursday night showings before the, the, the it rolls out with, for a full schedule the next day. So my wife, my wife has been, so she's retired, but she went back to work for a short period of time, and now she's back into retirement mode. So we went to see that the, uh, on a Thursday night before the Friday opening. And, uh, oh, I just absolutely love this film. And, and if you love comedy, and here's the thing about Late Night, uh, it, it's funny, but it's, it's intelligent funny and it's slapstick funny at the same time. I mean, you've got the same, both kinds of humor involved in this. Uh, my wife is a very big fan of Mindy Kaling. My wife, she liked the show The Mindy Project. Yeah, The Mindy Project. Oh, she, that's all we talked about in the car, coming home with The Mindy. I'd never seen it, but she told me all about The Mindy Project. And the fact that she'd been a writer on The Office mm -hmm. and then actually ended up being a, a cast member. Well, she wrote this film. She wrote the whole screenplay of this film, Late Night. Now, here's the thing. It, it, it actually sets up a world that does not exist because it's got this character named Catherine Newberry, uh, and it's played by Emma Thompson. Wow, what a what a job she does! Anytime she's on stage or in a film, and she pulls it off again here. But she's here's a woman in her fifties, and in this story, she has had her own late night talk show on a network for more than ten years. Now, there's no woman that's had a late night comedy show for ten years or anything close to it. So, um, you know, that's 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 they set up a situation that really doesn't exist. But here's the problem: the show is dying. The, the writing staff is in a funk. They just write the same jokes every night, and everybody. The ratings are kind of slowly going down over a ten-year period. So her, you know, whether she knows it or not, at first the show is, is is on a downhill slide. Well, she gets a jolt when they get a new corporate executive in charge of the network, and she comes in and says, "We're canceling your show." Well, she knows she's only got so many months to to build it back up and try to make a case to keep her program, and and. Uh, it, and here comes the Mindy Kaling character. She's, her name is Molly. They spell that M-A-L-I from her background of being from India, her family being from India. And she's this lonely girl uh, who is in, uh, you know, she, she doesn't live in Manhattan. She lives with relatives in Queens. So she's not really close to all the, the media-hyped stuff. But there's, uh, um, she wants to be a writer, a comedy writer. She has no experience and guess you know how she gets the interview for the writing job? She works at a chemical company, and they had a contest where they could meet an executive. So she wanted to meet the top executive. Just so happens the top executive of this big conglomerate not only owns a chemical plant, but they own the TV network. <laughs> so he gets her an interview 
with this show. This is Catherine Newberry tonight. They call it the Tonight Show, actually. And uh, she, uh, and that was right at the time when this Catherine Newberry character gets the news that the show was stale. It's the same thing. She doesn't even know the names of her writers. She never talks to her writers. She gives them numbers because she can't remember their names. I mean, it's just hilarious. So then they say, I gotta, they're all white males. I've got to find, I, give me a woman. I need a woman. And it just so happened that, you know, the character Molly shows up for the interview at the exact moment that Catherine is screaming at her executive producer <laughs> to get a woman so she's hired. Uh, it's a great story. It's a funny story. Um, there are uh, there are stories of marital infidelity. Uh, Molly has some heartbreak along the way, and, and and of course she's not accepted at first, and she has to earn her right. But eventually she earns the respect of the fellow writers and of Catherine. Catherine just fires people left and right. She fires. I think she ends up firing Molly twice <laughs> during the film. But obviously it doesn't stay that way. But there's just so much great comedy, and, and this woman, this this. Uh, this 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 woman is such a great writer, and she is so funny. I, you talk about walking away from a film and you really feel like you had a good time. I, there's plenty of laughs in this film, and it's so much fun. And I gave it a B rating. It, it's not a perfect film, uh, but it's 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 so much fun. I've got to recommend people see it. And also, great supporting. Uh, performance by John Lithgow playing the Catherine Newberry's husband. Oh, I always enjoyed John Lithgow. Um, you know, I'll admit, I saw the trailer for this and it was intrigued me to some degree because I like Mindy Kaling. Um, I think she's, you know, I heard that she, now that you tell me that she wrote it, now my interest really peaks. But I, I wonder about the marketing for this film, how well it will do, because uh, Mindy Kaling is very popular, but she's not a huge star. Emma Thompson, you know, I mean, she's been around a long time. I wouldn't call her a big box office draw. And the marketing for this film, the trailer seemed a little iffy. So um, what I hear from you, Christopher Lloyd said the same thing, that this might be kind of an underrated gem that mm -hmm. people should go seek out. But don't always let the trailer... No, the trailers are, you know, it's, it's nice to get a peek. But remember, the marketers are throwing at you what they yeah. want to throw at you in two minutes. There's a lot of really good movies that, if you watch the trailer, didn't seem interesting. And then there are a lot of films that you saw the trailer, and you're like, oh, that seems great. And you go see it, and every joke was in the trailer or, you know, just didn't accurately portray what the movie was like. Perfect example. Next time you think, okay, the trailer didn't look very good. One film that was a huge bomb at the box office because they didn't know how to market it and the trailer was kind of boring was Office Space. When Office Space came out, people thought it was going to be Dilbert the movie. Like, oh, this is about... Because Dilbert was very popular at the sure. time. Comics were about office life. Oh, this is just making fun of what it's like to be in an office. There's some of that in Office Space, but there's so much more. And there's... So I'm glad you're telling me that this movie is good. Um... I'm interested in going to see it now. I yeah. know that it'll probably be on Prime since it's Amazon Studios, so if I don't... Well, no, actually, that's, it is not on Prime yet. Well, it will be eventually. Eventually, but, the, but there had, they have released films that were put on Prime at the same time. Oh, well, probably. They've done that occasionally, and they made a very clearest message. This is not going to be on Prime, and they don't say when, but it's not going to be for a while. So, yeah, it's Amazon Studios that produced it. I, I hope they continue to uh, produce quality material like this. And and here's the thing, it's it's comedies can fall on their face so easily. Comedy is so hard to do well. And here is a 
a girl that is has a talented actress, but she's a talented writer, and the, and the director is is somebody who's done a lot of edgy types of things, and and you know you take a few chances, and sometimes you fall on your face. This time it works. When so you've got a comedy where the comedy really does work, and 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 the whole dynamic is just so funny. Well, it's got a serious moments, but it, it's a little melodramatic at sometimes. But it's got some great lines in there, so I won't spoil any of, of that for you. But I would recommend. I don't think your wife Nicole would like it too. Well, good. Now, Larry, this isn't uh, movies, but it's kind of movie related. But you saw some theater on a trip to New York. Yeah, my, my wife and I had a long planned trip to New York City, and really, it was originally planned to be um, to be a, a theater trip. You know, to see as much theater as we could. We're only going to be there three nights. We figured two. Uh, we we're going to see two uh, plays. Here's the funny story. We had originally planned to go this week, the week we're in now, and I we were looking at the plays that were available. And I told my wife Jane, I said, "Well, it's too bad because Network." is a play. It was a former movie. With Brian. Anyway, I'll just say, I, I, Network is on, and I'm, you know, I'm sorry we can't see that. I really wanted to go see it. She goes, okay. Then the next day, she comes to me and said, you didn't tell me Brian Cranston was in it. <laughs> let's, move the, let's move it up a week. Let's go see Network. And it uh, turns out Brian Cranston, uh, just a few days after we had watched that play, won the Best uh, Actor Tony Award. Uh, which he richly, but Jeff Daniels also would deserve the nomination and could have won just as easily. So I, I saw two plays that were films at one time. And I'll start with Network. Brian, it's a Brian Cranston production. Wow. What a. I, the only thing I can say about this, it's the most elaborate set, the uh, staging that mm-hmm. I've ever seen. They had all these electronics, these huge video, mm-hmm. the huge video screen in the yeah. back, and some of the. Uh, scenes were actually on the video screen. They had a control room to the left, but it was hard to see in the entire theater. So they had a camera in there, a handheld camera in there, and you could watch the scene on the screen. You really couldn't see it from your theater seat. So it was a very different kind of staging, excuse me, that I've seen for a long time. But anything Brian Cranston is in, he's going to excel at. And he did. He played, if you watch the film from the 70s, one of my favorite films of the 70s network, very prophetic, sadly prophetic, about what was going to happen in the news business. And it's, a, uh, it's about uh, a news anchor on network TV that uh, gets on the air and says he's going to kill himself the next night on the air, just right on the air. And the funny thing is the people in the control room were talking about something else. They didn't even know what had happened. And people had to run in and tell them and... And what happens is they take him off the air, but then the, it was so popular, there was, the ratings spiked when he says this. They put him back on two nights later, and uh, then they actually give him his own primetime TV show because he, he coins this frayed, phrase, uh, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore, and he, he encourages people to open their windows and yell, and people all around the country yell, and it, it all catches on and he ends up with a primetime TV show. Didn't, didn't Peter Finch uh, get a posthumous Oscar he, for that? You know, it was really sad. That was Peter Finch's last role, and he was doing publicity for the film. I think it was in Manhattan at the time, and he had a sudden heart attack, at, I think in the hotel lobby or something like that, and died rather suddenly, which was very sad. Uh, William Holden was much more the center of the film as the Max Schumacher, the news director. Uh, but uh, Peter Finch's character was was also a, a big part of it. But it was he's it's much more the center of the stage show. They were very faithful to uh, uh, to the uh, 
to the film, they still set the film in the 1970s, but there were winks and nods to present day. Let's just, I'll say that much. So I don't know if this might go on the road. It might end up, because so, I was very impressed with this. Uh, this this uh, this the stage production and Brian Cranston absolutely deserved his Tony Award. The night before, we went to see To Kill a Mockingbird at the famous Schubert Theater. And how should I put this? Uh, you and I talked before we started recording this that Aaron Sorkin uh, decided that uh, he wanted to put a different angle on the story. It was largely faithful to the original Harper Lee and to the film that was uh, that was produced a couple of years after. But it's the not the same out. stage play that's been circulating for... No, it's not the stage he play you would have new, seen. Yeah. He wrote a new stage. And here's, there, there are two or three big differences, and I won't get into details because I'm sure it's, it's going to be shown and, and go on the road, and, and there's some legal issues about which, if you don't have a play in your, in your high school, which, which version do you use? I won't get into all that. I will say that the one thing that, that uh, you will find immediately is that the African-American characters in the 1960 book and the 1962 uh, film don't have uh, a central voice. They don't really have much of a voice. And, and when Harper Lee wrote this book in 1960, you know, you had to think about the times. The audience probably wouldn't have bought that, sad as it might have been because of the state of race relations in America in 1960 and 62 when the, when the film came out. Sorkin took the maid. Uh, she becomes a, a very important uh, voice in the ear of Atticus Finch in this film. She is much more forward, much more, you know, you don't really understand what we're going through. You talk about your friends and neighbors, you're talking about your white friends and neighbors. You don't really think about us and the life that we have to live. And the defendant, the man who was accused of the rape in, in, in the, this play, he's much more challenging of Atticus Finch and willing to, to, to challenge what he's trying to say and how he's handling the case. So they have more that the African American characters are much more a center of this story as Aaron Sorkin has rewritten it. The the, the th second thing I will say is that Atticus Finch in the book and in the film, the original film, he actually sticks with this idea that there's some good in everyone. And it just has to come out. You know, people are not inherently evil. They may do evil things, but they're not inherently evil. We did bring the good out in them. And in, in the play, he starts to change his mind toward the end, partially because of what these African-American characters are trying to explain to him and show him that, okay, maybe they are our friends and neighbors, but maybe they're not always, they're not all. Maybe there isn't very much good of any in some of these people. So, and the third thing I will say is Scout. Scout got a, a Tony Award as well, the girl who played that. She was terrific. And she's much more the center narrator here than she was in a film. In the film, she narrates at the beginning, kind of goes, takes a back seat, and comes back a little bit at the end. She's all throughout the play. She really is the narrator of the story and much more central to, uh, to, that, uh, to the story. I couldn't say enough about both of these plays. They are just outstanding. Both deserved all the massive Tony nominations they got. Um, you know, I, I, musicals are fine, but I love really good stage plays. And the staging for uh, To Kill a Mockingbird was quite elaborate and very good. And 
I just enjoyed, uh, Aaron Sorkin was very honest. They re-ran the 60 Minutes piece that ran before the play opened just recently. And Aaron Sorkin was very honest with, uh, I think it was uh, Steve Croft that did this, the piece where he said, uh, uh, this is, are, you, are you worried about this? He goes, I'm scared to death. I'm taking an icon of American you know, film and, and literature, and I'm rewriting it. And, you know, yes, I'm scared to death. I don't know how people are going to take this. And at first there was some, pe- there was some wariness about it, and there was a lawsuit with the Harper Lee uh, uh, estate, which was settled pretty quickly. I don't know if they made script changes, payments, or a combination of both, but that all got settled. And what we have now is an outstanding product. So if this ever goes on the road, it won't, probably won't have Jeff Daniels in it if it goes on the road, but I'm sure they'll have a good cast of characters. Uh, I would encourage you to see this new Aaron Sorkin. It's still going to play several months on Broadway yet. Uh, if you ever have a chance to see it in New York, now one thing I will say, Adam, the seats on Broadway for these big high, uh, top-tier plays, they're not cheap. But my wife and I said, okay, we don't know when we're going to get back to New York again. Let's go ahead and yeah. see what we want to it's see. It's tough if you're planning a trip and you're only there for two days and you want to specifically see something, then you got to get online and shell out some money. Yeah, we did that. If yeah. you are, when I was um, 21, I spent a summer in New York interning at a magazine. And so we could just go anytime. So what we would do is go to the TKTS line. I'm very familiar with that. Yeah, yeah. and we because we were flexible. If we didn't see something one day, you know, we'll come back later. And there'd always be a day that, oh, my God, I can't believe that show is now uh, got some cheap tickets. Or the other trick, especially if you're 21 years old, if you had a student ID and you show up five minutes before a show starts, They'll basically give you a ticket for something very cheap because the show is about to start. They're not going to sell that last few seats if it's something. And a lot of times there was a great show that hadn't opened yet, and it was kind of in previews, and you can kind of get in there. I saw uh, Doubt, the original show for that, before it opened, and um, Proof. Um, So a lot of you know Pulitzer Prize-winning, well-known plays that uh, became movies that were very popular. Saw those early. Um, yeah, Aaron Sorkin, I'm, I'm interested to see what his take is. I've been a fan of a lot of his work. Um, I've been critical of him. I mean, I'm rewatching The West Wing right now, and the first four seasons when he was in charge before he left, it's some of the great writing in TV history. Uh, he can handle big subjects, um, and he does a great job with that. Of course, Jeff Daniels was in The Newsroom. And Which H- I thought was a great series on yeah. HBO. Yeah, and there was, there was parts that were hit or miss about that show, but Jeff Daniels knew how to handle Aaron Sorkin's writing. And, and it, 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 yeah, it was uneven, but there were more good than bad. It's kind of like yeah. Woody Allen, where not everyone can do Woody <laughs> Allen dialogue. True. Um, and it's the same thing with Aaron Sorkin. It takes a certain type of actor to handle the dialogue that Aaron Sorkin will put in a movie. Well, moving on, just as we wrap this up, uh, any films you're looking forward to this summer? You know, this summer, I'm not as excited. Of course, Toy Story 4 is coming out. I I don't know. I just don't have that much excitement about it. Uh, My mom, she loves horror films, so she wanted to go see the new Child's Play movie, which we used to watch the Chucky movies as kids. I'll admit the trailer doesn't look that good to me. But you just told us not to trust the trailer, right? I know, I know, (laughs) I know. But they've done a million of those movies. Um, That's true. Now that you tell me maybe I want to go see Late Night, I'll probably see the new Spider-Man movie. Uh, Again, I'm not as excited about it, but even a bad Marvel movie is still better than, like, a great DC movie. Um, 
So I know you were a DC I'm, fan growing up. I was growing up. I, the movie, sir. I'm, I'm waiting for the next Black Panther film. Oh, yeah, that'll, that'll be good. I yeah. mean, that'll be good. Actually, speaking of DC, Robert Pattinson's going to be the next Batman. I heard that. Yeah. And a lot of people were giving him a hard time because they're thinking just Twilight. Oh, he's the guy from Twilight. Well, actually, he's a pretty good actor. Well, um, my, people didn't think Michael Keaton could do Batman, and he was pretty good in that. Yeah. If you are questioning Robert Pattinson's credentials, Go watch a film called Good Time. It was a small kind of independent film. I think it's available on Amazon Prime for streaming, so you won't have to pay for it um, if you have a Prime membership. But it's a film where it's kind of a heist getaway driving movie, and he plays a very different character than Twilight. Um, And so, yeah, he's a capable actor. So don't let uh, one teen movie kind of throw you off there. It seems every summer there is a sleeper out there that will uh, come to the forefront that you maybe cannot foresee. Let's hope that happens this summer. Yeah, let's take one movie that it looks so dumb that it might be fun is the movie with The Rock and uh, Jason Statham, Hobbs and Shaw. I saw the trailer for that, and this film does not look like it's taking itself very seriously, (laughs) which is exactly the tone you should go for if you're doing a spinoff from the Fast and the Furious franchise. So I don't think I'll rush to theaters to see that, but if it's on cable, I might sit and watch it and be a lot more interested than I should be in a film like that. And there's several films I can kind of wait till I stream it or watch it on cable TV. I think I can I can wait. Uh, any fi- final thoughts? Is this good to get back together again? And we'll do this again. I guess when, uh, when one the... more movie sure, that's coming ahead. out. I, I predict it'll be a big box office success. I'm not sure if it'll be good or not. The live action, so to speak, Lion King film that's you coming know, out. That could go either way. You know, but Disney tends to do these well. But whether they can pull this off, that's going to be a big test. The big them. question will be is, will people like the look? Because mm-hmm. uh, they're supposed to look photorealistic. So it's not supposed to look cartoony at all. It's supposed to look like a real lion who's singing and dancing. I, I don't will know. that I, work? I saw a couple of clips. It didn't look that realistic to me. But that's just me. And maybe that's not a true reflection of the film. We'll find out soon enough. Okay, Adam, thanks for joining uh, uh, Thanks for joining me, and thanks for once again uh, uh, dipping our toes back into uh, Hamilton County Goes to the Movies. We'll be back when uh, the movies uh, give us good reason to get back together. So uh, best of luck with your political careers you move forward here and also with the restaurant, Donatello's. It's uh, another great place to have Italian food in this area. All right, thank you. Take care. On this episode of Hamilton County Goes to the Movies, Adam and I reviewed a number of films. We both reviewed Rocket Man, the life story of Elton John. I enjoyed the film a lot, gave it an A grade. Now, Adam liked Rocket Man, uh, but not as much as I. He gives Rocket Man the grade of B. We will be back soon with another episode of Hamilton County Goes to the Movies. Be on the lookout for our next podcast, once again emanating from Donatello's Italian Restaurant, 9 West Main Street in downtown Carmel. In the meantime, thanks for listening. We'll talk again. 